I want to say uh, we are glad to be back. We had a good time on vacation, restful time. Got to sit on the lake beach every day and suffer through it. It was awful. Terrible. I know you all are hurting for us. Got to do a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, a lot of praying, a lot of playing. Um, while I was down there, I read a book. You might have seen the movie. You may have read the book called Flags of Our Fathers, and it's about... Uh, about the raising of the flag on Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima. Wonderful, wonderful book. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. Um, but the, the book itself follows the, the five men who are in that photograph raising the flag. Unfortunately, uh, of those five, um, only three survived the battle and, uh, and were used to tell about it. One of those men, uh, his name was Doc Bradley, John Bradley. And he, he survived the rest of the other two men. He talks about in that book, his best friend named Iggy went missing in the middle of the battle. They were together. They're running around the battlefield. Both of them were foremen, medical officers trying to help the wounded, the dying. And he and Iggy were, were together. And he took off running to go help a man. And when he turned around, his friend Iggy was gone. And he spent the next day, two days, trying to find his friend. Um, and if you don't know the history of that battle, what the Japanese had done was dug tunnels and trenches under the island. And so they were grabbing people and kicking them under. And what he found out a few days later was that the Japanese had grabbed his friend and tortured him for three days in unthinkable ways, just mangling his body. When he got back to the States, it weighed heavily on him and he wanted to tell his parents what had happened, but he couldn't. He couldn't bring himself to tell the parents the details, and so he lied to them. And he said in this book that that haunted him, that, that he lied to the parents. Us listening can understand how difficult that would be. No one wants to talk about those kind of details. They're graphic. They're hard. Death is a painful thing to talk about. This morning, we're going to begin our next phase of our discipleship study on the stages of growth in a disciple. And the first is that we are dead. And it's one of those taboo topics that no one likes to hear. It's an inevitable reality physically for every one of us, even though every one of us tries to avoid it. But spiritually, it's a reality already. And it is this Point that we're going to consider this this morning that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which makes the gospel good news. There is nothing about grace that's amazing if this were not true. But because it is true, we sing of God's amazing love and grace toward us and his power in his son to raise us from the dead. I don't want to have any regrets talking to you about the realities that scripture puts forward to us. In the, in the Bible. If God says this is who we are, then this is who we are. And I don't want to change that. Because really, when we embrace this reality that the scripture says we are dead, that's when we find our true identity in Christ. It's when we understand the gospel. So our text, as Mallory read this morning, is out of Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 9. We're going to be considering a lot of other scriptures that support what Paul says in this passage. But if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, 
with me. The three main points we're going to consider this morning is first, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Secondly, but God. One pastor said those two words, but God, is the gospel in two words. I love that. I've always remembered that. But God made us alive together with Christ. And then third is Paul's summary of those two points, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works. That'll be our last point to consider. So let's read, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and verse 5, in consideration of this first point, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Several points Paul makes here need to be defined, because I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in a church that taught the word. I didn't have a knowledge of the word. Um, until I got in it and, and was born again in college. And this idea of being dead spiritually, I always had in my mind the idea of a physical death, where there's this inanimate body laying there, unresponsive, um, unable to respond, react, anything. And so we need to define what Paul means by dead in your trespasses and sins. First of all, what are trespasses and sins? Well, trespasses are those violations that every single one of us are guilty of concerning God's commandments. When when he said, thou shalt not lie, and we lie, we are guilty of a trespass against that commandment. When thou says, don't covet, and we covet, we're guilty of a trespass against God's commandments. Sins, what Paul's referring to here, is a general word that simply encompasses mankind's offenses against God in mind, body, and spirit. It's the totality of our state, sins in general. We're guilty. And not only that, he says, we live in these. Trespasses and sin puts every single person on equal footing in this sense. We're all guilty of it. And because we're all guilty of it, it renders all of us dead to God. Because God, by nature, is holy, righteous, pure. He cannot have fellowship with those who are living, existing in a state of rebellion and sin. There's a few scriptures to support that. James says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we've heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Literally, the way that reads in the Greek is, there is no consequence of darkness in God. In all of us, there's a consequence of the darkness of sin, the staining of soul, the bending of our will toward it. God is pure in that sense. He doesn't have any consequence of darkness in him. Job 25 says it even more graphically. How can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, much less man who is a magnet and the Son of Man, who is a worm. 
So being dead to God means that we are in trespasses and sins. We are guilty of it. They stained our soul, and because of that, we are dead to God. It renders our soul dead. But there's a sense in which we're very much alive to something, though we're spiritually dead. Look at these verses. Verse 2 and 3 give us some clues. Paul says that we once walked in these trespasses and sins. Not only that, we followed the course of this world, and we followed the prince of the power of the air, a reference to Satan. He also says in verse 3 that we lived in the passions of our flesh. So there's a sense in which we are very much alive. We walk, we follow, we live to sin, not to God. All in relation to sin, that we are alive and following and walking. There's also a sense in which we are very much alive spiritually, and I want you to follow me carefully here. We lived and followed in accordance to the demonic influences in our life. Now this, I know, is a harder point for some, because we live in such a materialistic society that discredits the spiritual realities around us. But the Bible makes it clear there are spiritual forces at work. There are satanic influences tempting. The prince of the power of the air is the ruler of this world, Jesus said. And so we are very much alive spiritually. People worship. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.20, what pagans, for instance, in his day offered as a sacrifice, they offered to demons. So we're very much alive spiritually. We, we looked a few weeks ago that man is created to worship. And just because the fall happened doesn't mean that that drive to worship stopped. It just redirected worship from who it should have been on in the first place. We are all worshipers of something, whether it's of a, a so-called God or whether it's of just pleasure or money or power or fun or whatever it might be. We are worshipers. So we are very much alive spiritually in that sense. But spiritually, our worship is demonic. We're dead to God. So it's rendered useless. So we're all participants of this. In other words, none of us can look at our neighbor and say, yeah, you sinner. Did you notice Paul's language? He goes from the trespasses and sins in verse 1, in which you once walked, to verse 3, saying, among whom we all once lived. We are all in this boat together. Death has a magnificent way of putting every single person, rich, poor, great, or not, on equal footing. Funerals are, are um, a sad time for many, but they're a sobering time, and they're, in that sense, beneficial, because it brings us all to the same reality. The casket that lays before us, we understand, will one day be ours. None of us avoid it. We're all on equal footing. Isaiah says it this way. This is out of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one. To his own way. One of the hardest truths for pastors and ministries to communicate to people, especially in today's age, is the reality of their great need. And it's this right here. Every single one of us has gone astray. None of us were born into righteousness. None of us knew the Lord. None of us were friends with him. Every single one of us had gone astray. In fact, if you will, keep your finger in Ephesians here. 
Romans chapter 3 gives us probably the most graphic and descriptive and devastating description of people before they are renewed in Christ. Romans chapter 3, Paul grabs many verses from all over the Bible and he puts this phrase together that literally is a devastating critique of men. In Romans 3 verse 10 and following, Paul says, None, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, if it stopped there, it would be bad enough. But Paul brings even more to the light. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. In other words, the words that we say to one another bring death, not life. They use their tongues to deceive. How many of you have done that? Guilty. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Isaiah would say in chapter 5, the reason his, his language was bad because it was the language of an unclean heart. It's a reflection of our heart. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Boy, you can do a world survey right now and confirm that verse pretty easy. Ruin and misery, the way of peace, eludes mankind even in the 21st century. There is no fear of God before their eyes, and that's the biggest problem. There is no fear of God before men when we're living in our sin. That's a devastating critique of who we are as people. But it's a true critique when we're honest with each other. And that is the purpose of understanding what spiritual death is. This idea of spiritual death takes us back to the very, very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. And I'll read it to you. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. God warned Adam then. says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we know that the immediate death God's referring to is spiritual death. God, Adam is in the garden with God. He's walking with God. He's talking with God. He's fellowshipping, which is the purpose Adam was created for. The moment Adam took of the fruit and ate, what happened? He was separated. He was kicked out. Fellowship stopped. Physical death would follow some 900 years later because God barred Adam from eating of the tree of life, which would have perpetuated his condition for all time. So he wouldn't let Adam take of the tree of life and eat. It was the mercy of God. So spiritual death is primarily what's in view. Physical death would follow. So I want us to understand from this point that when we consider this topic of death, physical death is not our primary concern. And it should never be. It is, unfortunately, what most people fear the most, and what I'm working to do is, is to change your mind to say, no, physical death is not what we should fear most. Spiritual death is what we should fear most. That's the reality that concerns each and every one of us. For the Christian, physical death is a homecoming. And so we don't need to fear that. John Calvin said this, as Adam's spiritual life would have consisted in remaining united and bound to his maker, so estrangement from him was the death of his soul. Here's some words. I just 
in, in reading the scripture, I just started this, this week when we got back, writing down words used to describe people who are lost, who are separated from God. Dead, enemy, ignorant, blind, defiled, deaf, lost, child of wrath, alienated, having no hope, helpless, sinner, evil, unclean, and the list could have gone on. The Bible takes great strides to show mankind the truth, as difficult as it might be. You are not in a good state in relation to God. Spiritual death is a terrifying issue. It's no small issue to consider in truth the reality of our spiritual deadness to God, but it is where the gospel starts. And thank God it's where it starts, because God could not turn a blind eye. He dealt with the problem, and he overcame it. There's a, uh, a tendency in people that I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed, and I've also seen in, in me, to avoid the reality. We want to somewhat bury our head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening. And yet, if I'm diagnosed with cancer, I don't go read a good book just to get my mind off it so that it might go away. The reality of cancer is still present in my body and I have to deal with it. There was a quote from an early prolific American biographer named Gamaliel Bradford that captures this idea wonderfully and it's a sad quote. He says, I do not dare, he said this by the way as he was approaching his own death. He said, I do not dare read the New Testament for fear of awakening a storm of anxiety and doubt and dread, of having taken the wrong path, of having been a traitor to the plain and simple God. Did you get what he's doing? By somehow willfully remaining ignorant of what the New Testament tells me about who I am, if I simply don't read it, then I'll be okay. But we do this, folks. We do this. We don't want to look at the darkness of our own soul the reality that even one lie has deformed us. One of the things I was thinking about as I read just the horrendous nature of warfare in the Pacific during World War II and how people's bodies literally were being mangled. I thought to myself, you know, we, we witness today the atrocities that men do to each other and how we can do such carnage to our physical bodies. I wonder if there's a comparable illustration of what sin does to us spiritually. When you look at warfare and how it mangles people, I wonder how mangled our soul looks to God when sin distorts it. And maybe it doesn't compare. Maybe physical mangling doesn't come close to the spiritual distortion that happens. But that's true. Willful neglect and ignorance of these truths doesn't change the reality of them. And so Paul is a wise pastor Starts with these Ephesians reminding them you were dead. So what about us today? I wrote down some statements of, of people who would be categorized as spiritually dead. Common statements you might hear today. For instance, I don't believe there is a God. It's easy to live that way, right? Because then there's no conviction. The Bible is a bunch of myths. For those of you at First Presbyterian and Waypoint, we, we covered this at our Worldview Conference. God is just a crutch. We had a governor of one of the states of the United States of America say that very phrase. God is just a crutch. I don't need him. 
and he's leading our people. There are many ways to get to God. There is no hell because God is a God of love. That's very common today. In fact, I just read it yesterday. I am and have been a good person now. Maybe that thought lodges in each one of us. It's a common thought in church. I'm a good person. I go to church. I don't kill. I don't steal. I don't lie. That statement is terribly revealing of someone's spiritual state. There are no absolute right or wrongs. And last, I'll take my chances with the man upstairs. All these reveal the same root of unbelief one way or another. And they all reveal the spiritual state of the person who's able to say that. Dead and sin. They don't know the Lord. And so, the great challenge for ministry, any ministry, is to labor first and foremost to show someone their need. You are dead to God. And that is why the gospel matters. If we don't labor in our own lives to understand my state before God found me and show others their state before God finds them, they will never understand what the gospel is. It will never be amazing to them. It will never grab their devotion, their love, their affection, and it will certainly never transform their heart because their heart doesn't think it needs to be transformed. And yet the, the gospel is the power of God for that very purpose. And here's a summary of what it means to be dead to God. Alienation from him. Several verses state that. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants. 4.18, Ephesians 4.18, Paul writes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then in Colossians 1.21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh. Being dead to God also means that you are his enemy. Paul writes this in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It also means that we are a slave to sin. Romans 6, Paul writes this, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. We are also under God's wrath. Now, this was a hard point for me when I first came to faith to understand that I was under God's wrath. Because I still had a self-righteous way of thinking. Thinking, no, if I'm good enough, I'll be under God's favor. Not under his wrath. The reality the Bible points us to is this. All of us are born in sin as sinners and we abide under his wrath from then on until we come to faith. We are under his wrath. Here's what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And ultimately, what being an enemy or dead to God is, is to be fixed in an eternal separation from him. Revelation 20, 13 through 15 says this, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he also was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the reality for anyone who doesn't come to faith in Christ. This is their reality. It's sobering to look at. It's difficult to look at. But it's what makes the gospel so amazing. Because Paul goes on in his second point in Ephesians 2. If you'll turn back there with me. And he says this. But God. Verse 4. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. There's a word biblically that we use for this being made alive. And it's the word regeneration. We define regeneration this way. The imparting of God's divine nature and life to man. By the work of the Holy Spirit through the word. Now I want to define it very intentionally that way. Because some people think that what God does in us when we come to faith is that he just kind of cleans you up and makes you better. And that's not at all what he does. He's not interested in making you better. We are ruined. He's interested in putting the old man to death and making you new. And the way he does that is he imparts his life to you. And he does that by grafting you to his son. Did you notice that word? He's made you alive with Christ. We're going to get to that in a minute. So salvation is the imparting of his life to us. It's a new life that we previously did not have and was un unknown to us. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a phrase you've probably heard in songs and churches and maybe used. When you're calling people to come to faith in Christ, it's often important that they give their heart to the Lord. Have you heard that? I understand the intention, and there's a place in theology especially where that's true. We do give our hearts to the Lord, but it's not at salvation. There's nothing we can give God that he wants. We give our hearts to the Lord after we've been saved to be sanctified. But at salvation... The gospel call is not give your heart to the Lord. The gospel call is receive what he gives you. You see the difference? That is so important. At this point in our growth, we're simply looking at how do we move from being dead to alive? You've got to receive. You don't give the Lord anything. You can't. There's nothing he wants. You're in a position because of your deadness to God where you're a beggar. What do you have to give as a beggar? Nothing. That's the grace of God. He gives you everything you need. And he says, receive it. John 1.12, John says this, For as many as would receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It's in the receiving of Christ. It's in the receiving of the gospel. How do we receive it? Simply by faith. I hear the word. I see my need. And that the gospel needs it. And I believe. And that's it. It is that simple. So it's not give your heart to the Lord. It's receive the Lord. Then move on. Here's some other scriptures that speak of this idea of regeneration, rebirth, and our need for John 3, 3 and 5. Jesus says to the Pharisee Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or you could translate it as born from above, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Our need is not a rebirth. And Nicodemus didn't quite get that physically. How can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? You're missing it, Nicodemus. I'm talking on spiritual realities here. You must be reborn from the spirit. It's a spiritual birth because we are spiritually dead to God. Titus 3, 5, Paul states this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the second half of that phrase next week. The renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 23. This might sound familiar because we just sang it in one of our songs, Living Hope. Peter declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 23, Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then he writes in the second letter, verse chapter 1, verse 4, that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. See, what God does when he makes us alive with Christ is this. He says you are dead, and he's not interested in cleaning you up. He's interested in burying you and raising you to a new life with Christ, where you and Christ are literally in union together. His life is your life. His righteousness is your righteousness. His power is your power. His death is your death. Over and over and over, we see these statements in Scripture. Here's what my favorite old pastor said, A.J. Gordon, is Christ was made a partaker of the human nature by his incarnation so that he might enter into truth fellowship with us. So we also are made partakers of the divine nature by regeneration, rebirth, so that we may enter into the truest fellowship with God. What a good quote. Christ became a man, why? So that he would know us and we could know him. But then he gives us his nature so that we might know God. Isn't that beautiful, the plan of God? We're dead spiritually. Nothing we can do to change that. What does God do? He makes us alive with Christ. He regenerates us. Summary of what it means to be alive to God then is you've been born again. You've been born from above as we just read in 1 Peter you're also a new creation. That word new, I've said this often, I'll say it again. It's not new in number, it's new in quality, not quantity. This is a new thing God has done. Brand new. You have a new nature as a Christian. One where you can walk with God in truth and righteousness, as Paul would also say later in Ephesians. You have life, according to John 6.40. Here's what it what John writes, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What must you do to be made alive with God? Look on the Son and believe. That's Jesus' statement. And he says, that's the will of the Father. That's salvation, church. You can't do a thing to earn it. You look on the Son and believe. He's sufficient. You're also no longer under wrath. Here's what Jesus said in John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then in Romans 8.1, Paul 
Paul writes this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So you move from abiding under God's wrath to abiding in his grace. That's what it means to be alive to God. You also have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is different than the peace of God, which guards your heart and mind. That peace of God can be interrupted when we sin, when we break fellowship. We won't have peace. Our spirit, our conscience will be agitated. But this, this statement here in Romans 5.1 is a fact that never changes. You have peace with God. Why? Because God justified you. He's declared you righteous. That's a fact. It's a bedrock that doesn't change. And you also have forgiveness of sin. Colossians 1.14, Paul writes, In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to notice in our text here in Ephesians 2, that when Paul says in verse 5 that we have been made alive, with Christ, and then he interjects the statement, by grace you have been saved. Being saved and being made alive are synonymous. In other words, if the new life of Christ is not manifested in you, you're not saved. There is no salvation apart from being made new. And this is important because droves of people claim to be saved, and yet their lives are lived in the deadness of the sin that they had before. There's nothing new about them. There's no godliness. There's no Christ-likeness. There's no drive or zeal for the things of the Lord. They're still dead. They still long for the world and the things of it. You see, when you come to faith in Christ and you've been given a new nature, you've been born again, the world no longer appeals to you, just like it didn't appeal to Jesus. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus, hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You go worship me. What did Jesus say? No. I'll inherit the kingdoms of the earth anyway, but I will only worship the Lord God. That's the Christian. When you're born again, all that loses its appeal. The power of sin in your life is broken so that you can walk free from it. You can walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, according to Galatians 5. So these two phrases, made us alive and being saved, are synonymous. And this is so important. You do not want to be deceived yourself, and you don't want to deceive others. The new life of Jesus is not being manifested in you, especially after a supposed profession of faith. There was no salvation. There was no rebirth in you. It was simply a religious experience. New life can only come to those who have been born again. But it can come to anybody, and it can come at any point, at any stage of life, at any age. Let me give you some examples of things I've seen. Salvation, new life, meets the child who's under conviction for telling a little white lie. It's enough. It meets the material atheist in his best attempts to explain creation apart from God. It meets the hardened convict in his jail cell. New life meets the secular humanist in the midst of his carnality and indulgence of his flesh. It meets the housewife in her frustration with the children at home. It meets the husband who's addicted to work and has a love for money. It meets the religionist who has gone to church all their life but has never known or experienced any birth. <clears throat> Being born again, made alive with Christ, happens every day to any person in any situation. That's the beauty of it. 
The way God affects this new life is not by cleaning us up, but by putting us to death. And then joining us in union with Christ. I mentioned this earlier. I wanted to talk about it now. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then he goes on in verse 6. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places. This phrase, church, I want you to go study on your own. With Christ. In Christ, over and over and over, you see this in the New Testament, and it's incredibly important. I made a list of, of how Paul uses this phrase. In Galatians 2.20, he says, you have been crucified with Christ. In Romans 6.4, he says, you've been buried with Christ. And here in Ephesians 2, he says, you've been made alive with Christ, you've been raised up with Christ, and you've been seated with Christ. You see the, the picture Paul is painting, what a disciple is. This is the point. When God does a work in someone, he unites you with and in Jesus. You are crucified, you are buried, you are made alive, you are raised, and you are seated with him. So that everything that was Jesus is yours, including his suffering, including his death, but also including his resurrection and his life and his reign forevermore. That's the beginning of discipleship, according to the scripture. It's not coming to church, learning some religious phrases, singing some songs and doing this whole thing. That's not what a disciple is. Those are activities of a disciple. A disciple is someone who's been united with Jesus in the likeness of his death, so also in the likeness of his resurrected life. That's the gospel. That is beautiful. This is why Paul, when talking to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, in a very sinful church, he says this, he gets to the point of exasperation with them. They just kept on sinning, kept on sinning, kept on sinning. He finally says in chapter 13, you need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. But the way he has them test themselves is this. He says, do you not know if Christ is in you? He points to the union. The testing is, well, I go to, it's not I go to church or I sing songs or I serve in this and that. That's not how you test to see if you're in your faith. The test of whether you're in the faith or not is, is Christ in you? Because his life will be being manifested. If he's been raised, so you were raised. You cannot be the same person you were before salvation. That's what it means to be alive to God. Moving on in Ephesians, he says this in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We all know that passage. It's a wonderful passage, but really in the context, it's just the summary of what he said. When we understand rightly, church, that we were dead, and all that that means, all that the Bible paints the picture of being dead, it's horrific. But God made us alive together with Christ. The statement You've been saved by grace through faith is a summary of that. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves. It speaks to the work of making us alive by the word and the Holy Spirit through the faith of the believing subject. There's an often said statement, his was the saving, mine was the believing, to him be the glory. It's true. What did I do? I believe. 
Belief is not a work, by the way. Some churches will say, well, even that, you know, in this verse it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not referring to faith, it's referring to the work of salvation. The faith is yours. But even that, God generated. He persuaded you of these truths, and if he had not done that, you would have never believed. He had, by his spirit, to draw, to convict, to reveal, to show. Thank God he did. Mine was the believing. We are justified by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. Salvation is a gift of God. Salvation is not a result of works. Why? So that none of us can boast. What can I say? I didn't do anything to save me. So we understand when we get to this point in Paul's passage in Ephesians that this statement, we are saved by grace through faith. When you truly have dealt honestly with your own soul about the spiritual condition we are all in before we come to faith, that statement is music. You understand what I'm saying? When you see the darkness of your own heart, the pervasiveness of our pride, of our lust, of our greed, of our jealousy, of our anger, when we see that that's truly a description of my heart, it's depressing. It leaves us hopeless. It leaves us in despair. And then for someone to come along and say, hey, salvation is still possible. Powers by grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's music to hear that salvation is possible despite my spiritual deadness is good news indeed. There is no work that we could do that could cause us to remake, rebirth, or save ourselves. Those who are lost need to be found, and those who are dead need to be made alive. And here we've revealed the revealed motive of God. It's his rich mercy, and it's unending love that we be sown. That's it. The love of God. He loves us. Ezekiel 18, I don't desire that the wicked perish. I would that they would turn and live. And I've made a way possible for it to happen. Because of his rich mercy, his great grace, his great love. So in summary, I wrote this summary of, of what I've been talking about. And then I want to read an account to you from a missionary. Without this reality of spiritual deadness, death, the good news, which is what the gospel means, has very little meaning for us. The spiritual deadness of man is what makes the good news good news. In fact, avoiding this reality, shunning its difficulties, its harsh reality from our pulpits and churches, and I should have added families and homes, workplaces, we have inadvertently gutted the power of the gospel. But the amazing grace of the gospel is centered on the fact that it saved a wretch like me. That's it. And this is where the gospel starts. This is where discipleship starts. I was dead. He made me alive. By grace, I've been saved. From here, church, we're going to look at the growth of a disciple, infancy, childhood, and maturity. I want to give this account from a missionary in India named David Morse. In his life and labors there, he befriended a devout Hindu man named Rambao, I think is how you say it. And he had tried many times to explain to this man that salvation is a free gift to no avail. 
This devout Hindu's eyes were blinded to this truth until the Lord opened his eyes using Rambau's own story. One day, this devout Hindu came to David Morris and said he was going to crawl many miles on his hands and knees in an act of worship and devotion all the way to New Delhi as a means to earn his salvation. But before he was about to leave, he gave his missionary friend a small box. And here's where I quote. He says, I've had this box for years. I keep only one thing in it, and now I want to tell you about it. I once had a son. A son, Morris responded. Why, you never told me that you had a son. Yes, my son was an excellent pearl diver, and one day he found a most beautiful pearl, one of the largest ever found off the coast of India. But he had stayed under the water too long, and he died soon after he recovered the pearl. So I've kept the pearl, and now I want to give it to you. Well, Rambau Morris said, this is an amazing pearl. Let me buy it. I will give you $10,000 for it. If, if you need more, then I'll work for it. Sahib, said Rambau, stiffening his whole body. This pearl is beyond all price. No man in all the world has money enough to pay what this pearl is worth to me. I will not sell it to you. You may only have it as a gift. No, I cannot accept that. As much as I want the pearl, I cannot accept it in that way. I must pay for it or work for it. The old pearl diver was stunned. You don't understand. Don't you see my only son gave his life to get this pearl? And I wouldn't sell it for any money. Its worth is in the lifeblood of my son. I cannot sell this, but I can give it to you. Just accept it as a token of the love I bear you. The missionary was choked, and for a moment he could not speak. Then he gripped the hand of that old man. Rambau, he said in a low voice, don't you see? This is just what you've been saying to God. The old pearl diver looked long and searchingly at the missionary, and slowly, slowly he began to understand. David Morse went on, God is offering you heaven as a free gift. It is so great and priceless that no man on earth could buy it. No man on earth could earn it. His life would be millions of years too short. No man is good enough to deserve it. It costs God the lifeblood of his only son to make the entrance for you into heaven. In a million years and a hundred pilgrimages, you could not earn that entrance. All you can do is accept it as a token of God's love for you, the sinner. Of course, I will accept the pearl with deep humility, but Rambau, won't you receive God's great gift of life as well? With deep humility, knowing it cost him the death of his son to offer it to you. There's a long pause between the two men. When the Hindu spoke, Sahib, I see it now. I have believed in the doctrine of Jesus for over two years. But I could not believe that his salvation is free. Now I understand some things are too priceless to be bought or earned. Sahib, I will accept his salvation. That's the gospel. It's free. It's offered. And we're all in a position to receive it. That's where we start our journey with God. So I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads, please, for a moment while I invite the worship team back up. I want you to just go before the Lord, and if maybe you have been walking with him for a few years, many years, I want you to just reflect and take this time to worship him in your heart. And maybe you haven't. Maybe you've not known the Lord in salvation. Maybe you've never experienced the new birth, the change of nature. The offer is for you now. I don't hold God in a box. There's no magic formula. 
you can receive him right now in your seat. It is simply by faith. Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that his sacrifice, his death was sufficient for your sin? Do you believe that it can be yours? Call out to him in your heart. Believe on him. And begin following him. He loves all of us. He's paid the price and his sacrifice is sufficient for all who would come.